You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello and welcome to the Friday Afternoon Cranky Pants edition of Dresbert. I'm Heather Hurlbert and I run the New Models of Policy Change program at New America. I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and I write spoiler alerts for the Washington Post. And boy are we cranky. We are so cranky uh, because we're like foreign policy people and we've had to deal with a lot of stuff this week that generally does not think highly of foreign policy people. Um, but we will start with uh, one Donald J. Trump, um, who by winning the Indiana primary and forcing out Ted Cruz and John Kasich is now actually going to be, and I, words that I really never thought I was going to say out loud, the presumptive GOP nominee for president in 2016. Uh, hold on, I need to just like bang something against my head right now as a result of that. No, um, no, folks, no. I, I can't see whether he has his whiskey bottle there or not, <laughs> by the way. I should have brought the whiskey bottle, damn it. Um, so needless to say, what the the interesting thing, um, you know, and this is an ongoing debate you and I have had about Trump, is whether Trump is so truly out of bounds relative to both GOP foreign policy thinking not to mention, you know, human decency standards that uh, that essentially the, the GOP's foreign policy machinery, for lack of a better word, you know, would eventually capitulate and decide to advise Trump or not. Um, now, you being in D.C. and because I was out of the country, you might even have a little more inside intel than I do on whether that capitulation has actually taken place. I don't think it has, but I'm curious what your what your take is on this so far. My take is that you're seeing a split mm -hmm. and the, you know, it is, I think, along the same outlines that we've seen before, but um, that the people, you know, the sort of Max Boots of the world who are making a very great show of saying they don't support Trump right. um, tend to be the more um, neocon intellectual wing of the Republican foreign policy party, the Republican foreign policy wing of the party. Mm -hmm. um, whereas what, what you're seeing that surprises me, although I guess it shouldn't surprise me, is people that you think of as maybe being part of the more realist wing, and I'm using the word realist very generously here, and I apologize in advance to the academic realists in the room. But I don't think um, you should apologize to them, but that's a whole separate rant I can go on, but go ahead. We did that rant last that's time. That's true, yes. Okay, um, fair enough. But no, I mean, so for me, the real tell was when Senator Bob Corker, the yeah. chairman of Senate Foreign Relations, um, sort of appeared to give his his papal blessing to to Trump. And that, you know, to me was a signal that for the that part of the D.C. Republican foreign policy establishment that is desirous of office holding, that was a signal that it was going to be safe that it was going to be safe to go to Trump. Well, okay, can I push back on that? Because I, I think the cleavage is less, the cleavage that I see on this is frankly between elected officials versus, you know, sort of people housed in conservative think tanks or on the op-ed pages or what have you. I mean, you're right that Corker has, so, you know, Corker made that statement of, oh, it's good that he's challenging the foreign policy establishment, which if Bob Corker is not part of the foreign policy establishment, I really need a different definition of what that means. 
Well, we're going we're gonna to get to that. There's a little confusion on my side of the aisle, too, about whether, what it means to be a brave rebel against the foreign policy there we, establishment. Yes, yeah, that's so, definitely so true. We'll get, that's gonna be the, we'll get to that. That's true. That's going to be the theme of this. But I mean, it was, it was somewhat fatuous, of, of I thought, of Corker to say that. But that said, I mean, beyond Corker, what, what struck me this past week was, with the notable exception of Paul Ryan, um, the degree to which D.C. Republicans either would not say a word against Trump or have sort of said, yes, okay, Trump won, so it's now time to, to rally behind him. Whereas, you know, not just the foreign policy people, but also, let's say, the George Wills of the world um, have basically said, no, under no circumstances are, you know, should we support this guy. Um, we need to figure out what, you know, how to sort of save the, the what, what remains of the Republican Party, you know, in a post-Trump period. So I'm wondering if that's the, the more proper cleavage rather than one based on, on sort of foreign policy schools of thought. Well, I think, though, I mean, I would I would maybe draw the cleavage yet another way. Okay. So George Will, which, by the way, one of the saddest things I've ever seen was George Will at the Cubs-Nationals game last night. Oh, really? And Well, the um, it was really sad because the, the Nationals broadcasters actually cut to Will in the stands and said, look, it's George Will, and this is his dream game, his childhood team, the Cubs, against his hometown team, the Nationals. And Will was sitting utterly alone in an empty section of the stands, you know, looking like his dog died. And I thought, oh, it's not his dog, it's his party. To be but, fair, that's George Will's resting face. I mean, you know, yeah, that, yeah. That's, that, but, that's how he always looks. But yeah, go ahead. Well, more, more seriously, yeah. I, I do think you, the people that you're seeing make prominent sort of still never Trump yeah. statements are exactly the people who are more the, the literati, yeah. maybe is another. So, you know, George Will, Max yeah. Boot. Yeah, well, and, and people who who don't depend on or whose future careers don't depend on office holding. Yeah. Um, and what I do think you're not seeing because they're less prominent national figures, you know, they don't have columns and they don't get pointed out. You know, even sportscasters don't know who they are. Right. Um, but, you know, those folks have not right away because, frankly, Trump's not interested in them yet. But those folks have their own set of, of decisions to make. And I noticed that those were not the people who were burning their party cards and taking pictures and putting them on Twitter. Hmm. Um, another, so, and someone, uh, an example of that category that I'll give is Richard Grinnell, um, who, who may be known to, to Twitter, Twitter aficionados for his, his um, frequent and uh, vivid use of Twitter. He worked for John Bolton mm -hmm. um, in New York at the UN, and he's not happy about Trump, but he's also let it be known that he's going to be a Republican loyalist. Yeah, although, I mean, this is where we get, I mean, I, I think my all-time favorite sentence this week was, um, I think it was the Times story that Maggie Haberman and, and others wrote about, you know, what various office holders were doing in response to Trump. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was Kelly Ayotte, who said that she would support Trump but not endorse him, which is just some truly galactic hair splitting um, in terms of the distinction. And I, but but that said, I do wonder if you know Grinnell falls under the category of will vote for Trump but will not necessarily actually advise him. Um, you know, and I, I I do think at some point he's actually going to need. I, I recognize that to date he has managed to defy all laws of political gravity, but in a general election, um, the degree to which Trump will be challenged on various issues that he has no comprehension of, at some point he actually needs, if not just to be, you know, staffed up in terms of to know actually to, how to answer the question, he at least needs an apparatus to deal with the myriad number of times he will say something stupid. 
Um, you you um you missed obviously him saying this week that he thought he would be excellent on the military. So I I, uh, I was in Mexico, I, so that was uh, that that was probably just as well. I think that's that helped preserve my sanity. He really said that. Yeah, yes, he did really say that. Um, so I wouldn't. Uh, I mean, so two things. One is I wouldn't overestimate um, how much expertise he's going to feel that he needs. And number two, I think I think there's a fair amount of evidence mounting that that expertise will be available to him should he choose to avail himself of it. I'm not, I mean, this is, I, I mean, again, we, this is something we've been talking about since January. I, I guess the way I would put it is that while I do recognize that there will obviously be some people who will in the end decide to work for Trump, I'm not sure, to put it, let's put it this way, he's not going to get the best. Um, and I do think that is going to eventually hinder him, uh, you know, come the general election campaign, or at least I would really like that to be true. So I confess that um, that what I'm hoping is actually true might actually come true. Um, well, that you you raise though, there's a really important question there that is is being debated in a number of of different environments because I mean, as you can imagine, whether you are anti-Trump Republicans who are trying to figure out how to oppose him mm -hmm. and his foreign policy ideas. Whether you are establishment Democrats thinking about the same thing or whether you are sort of people around Sanders, you know, and all of those sectors are having this conversation, does it actually have, I mean, the thing that you would normally do in a campaign is you'd say, okay, you know, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. He can be prodded to make bad, embarrassing mistakes. He can be prodded to look reckless, crazy, and unreliable. And all we have to do is just keep doing that and he will... Um, yeah self-destruct, see under John McCain, September 2008, right. um, see under Mitch Romney, comma, trip to England and Israel. Mm -hmm. um, but it, is that exactly backwards in this cycle? And you, you have a number of, of Trump fans who are all over Twitter saying, no, 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 you pointing this out is playing right into his hands, you liberal establishment, East Coast, Washington, Hillary bought you. So there is this there is this belief that that sort of what you and I know how to do best is somehow actually going to help Donald Trump get elected president. And I mean, on the one hand, I don't think that's true because the national every four years electorate is not the same as the Republican primary right. electorate. On the on the other hand, a whole lot of people are feeling really stupid about ways that they misunderestimated Trump up to now. So I want to at least take. I want to take that seriously. No, I think that's fair. And I mean, it, it, you know, certainly I was someone who did not think Trump was going to, to get the nomination. Um, and I, you know, I'm hardly the only one. And so as a result, I think you're right, because all of the all of the objective data says that Trump should get clobbered. Um, that, you know, I mean, the polling to date, the fact that the economy is going along reasonably well, the fact that in some ways, when we talk about foreign policy, you know, if, if that's the area where Trump is most at odds with the um with with the the sort of mainstream you know uh, attitudes about this, it also raises a more important point, which is most Americans aren't going to vote about this. Um, they just don't care about foreign policy. Although in some ways this election will be a truly interesting test of that, because you can argue for the last 40, 50 years we've had two major party candidates that while they might disagree a fair amount on foreign policy are usually within the same rough area in terms of what they're talking about, and I think. You can argue that you'd have to go back to Robert Taft to get someone like Trump in the sense that, you know, he's that different.
Um, well, and, and this has actually kind of broken the commentariat, if you will, um, because the spec, the spectrum on which we know how to, or we seem to know, or we, much of the commentariat seems to know how to judge candidates is a right-left Cold War one. Right. And so you see these, um, you know, repeated gaffes, or what I think are gaffes, no, by, uh, by um, anchors, by oh. Maureen Dowd, by reporters saying, oh, you know, Trump is to the left of... Clinton because he opposed the Iraq war. Well, first Which of all, he did he not oppose the Iraq he war. He didn't oppose the Iraq war. There's video on that. But second, I mean, since when is anyone who thinks that waterboarding and torture are great way and targeting civilians are great way, not just, you know, things that maybe you do and you don't stand up very hard against, but things that are central tenets of your security policy and someone who thinks it's perfectly cool to ban entire religions from entering the U.S. and someone who thinks it's perfectly cool to ban entire continents as full of rapists. I mean, how, in what universe is that left? I do not have an answer for you. I actually thought that was a criminally awful Maureen Dowd column. Um, you know, in the sense that, but it, it, I think what it, it, let's face it, we are going to see a lot of versions of that criminally awful Maureen Dowd column, I fear, for the next six months for a few reasons. First, it's just going to tickle a lot of people to make the notion that, to put forward the notion that the Democrat is more hawkish than the Republican. Um, second, Trump is, if nothing else, really, really good at ignoring whatever the truth is and just simply saying what he thinks the truth is. So he has repeatedly said, that he opposed the Iraq war, um, you know, and if he says it long enough, he'll, you know, people besides doubt will say, well, he says that he opposes the Iraq war or he opposes, you know, further intervention in Syria or what have you. Um, so I, I do think you are going to hear that kind of narrative. The problem when you're talking about Trump and foreign policy is that a lot of the stuff he says, he says on one day and then the next day he either backtracks or says that that's not what he meant or you know, just confuses the issue even more. And it's incredibly, you know, so like the the, the bombing of uh, terrorist families, I think, you know, he then, after he said that, I, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't he then say, oh, no, that is actually against the law, so we won't do it, but I'll want to refine the law so that then we can do it. I mean, and we should... We or the should, torture, that was on torture, I'm sorry, go ahead. We should pause at least a moment over the speech he gave last week, which... <sighs> Def defeated the efforts of many people such as myself to comment on it because it was such a wonderful, um, I would say Walt Whitman-esque, except that's really unfair to Whitman, morass of, of contradictions that, you know, we, we haven't been nice enough to our allies, but on the other hand, our allies are all ripping us off. Yeah, that's a real um, problem. Was just, was just one of, of many, many, many. Or that um, it's insane for us to promote universal values, but we should absolutely promote Western values. Um, yes. Or, yeah, no, what, what was actually disturbing about that speech was that it was clear that some effort was put into actually writing it. I mean, he delivered it from a teleprompter, so it wasn't just sort of improvising. And, yeah, and it was it was a stringing together of some of the more popular cliches of center-right foreign policy, if not in a consistent manner. And this, I mean, I, I go back to my point of I think we have to be really careful with the idea that us, you know, pointy-headed establishment types um, can just point out where he's inconsistent and that will magically defeat him. Oh, no, that I, won't. I agree with you. That's absolutely correct. I sus Well, so t two things. First, I, I suspect that sort of 
the, again, there was this, you know, there was this story, um, which I heard secondhand, but it sounded so good, I've always hoped it was true, that when Al Gore was given a speech draft, he would actually physically cut it up with scissors and rearrange the pieces. And I could kind of imagine Trump and his staff sitting with kind of a blizzard of every cliche that ever, anyone had ever <laughs> uttered on national security, trying to figure out how to, how to put them together and sound, sound credible. But, but they picked ones that have some resonance with people. You know that there is a way, there is clearly a way that there's a swath of the electorate that, to whom it makes some kind of gut emotional sense that Barack Obama, who does seem kind of emotionally distant, is not nice to our allies. At the same time as it's a core truth that foreigners are ripping us off because that's what foreigners do. You are correct in the sense that I think there are ways, I mean, there's a third thing that you forgot that I also think that will resonate. And in some ways, this was the one persistent sort of you know, resentment in the Trump speech, which was the notion that people like you and I in the foreign policy establishment have failed the United States. You know, when he talked about shaking the rust off of American foreign policy, and the one clever thing I thought he did was where he explained that, you know, he wanted to look for new people that actually had new ideas, not people with excellent resumes that had simply gotten America into various wars. Um, you know, I suspect that'll resonate with a little bit with, with some yeah. people. Although, again, this this you have to step back for a second and ask whether any of this will actually matter in the sense of whether foreign policy is really going to be that significant in this election. I mean, I think this is an area where I do think the GOP primary population or voter base was very, very different from the general election uh, voters because, you know, we, we've seen public opinion polling that showed the Republican for Republicans, national security really has been a top issue, surprisingly so, but not the case for Democrats. And I'm not sure I don't think it was the case for independents as well. Well, it rose. Um, it rose for Democrats and independents, which was hmm. which was interesting to me to see that 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 actually, although we now have these very distinct political cultures, um, you can't actually entirely contain the crazy um, on your side of the aisle, Dan. If you guys are all screaming at each other about how we're all going to die, it does eventually start to make people on my side of the aisle nervous too. Um, and the other way that I think this is going to play, and I agree with you that it's going to play secondarily, but is the extent to which it fits into other narratives that the candidates are telling about themselves yeah. and each other. So obviously, you know, you're going to try to brand Trump as, as reckless everywhere in every aspect. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and Trump will have a set of critiques of Clinton, which the international stuff will fit into. I guess it's going to be I mean, I am actually legitimately fascinated about the ways in which Trump might try to attack Clinton and whether it'll actually work, because I, I you know, he occasionally tried to in the in the fall and spring, he was choosing lines of attack that I thought were truly bizarre, you know, calling her weak or things like that, which didn't make any sense to me. Uh, maybe the crooked argument will work better, um, although I'm not sure how that plays on the foreign policy front. Um, whereas on the other hand, I assume it's going to be pretty easy for the Clinton campaign to just raise the question of, do you want Donald Trump in charge of the nuclear codes? Because um, God knows I don't. Yeah. I mean, I do think um, the Karl Rove strategy that you go after right. your opponent where she's strong, not where she's weak, yeah. so that, that that's why Trump and, you know, because, look, we know there is a small but meaningful proportion of the American electorate that does have sort of gender connotations around strength and security. Sure. and. Trump needs every single one of those people <laughs> to go to the polls and vote for him if he's going to win. So, you know, to the to the extent that presidential elections are now not so much about changing anyone's mind as they are about convincing your folks to come to the polls and the other folks to give up and stay home, 
um, you know, there's there's a way that that Trump that there's no reason for him not to double down on on some of his. Oh, yeah. Um, more uh, uncouthful. Yes. Although, attacks. I, I have to say, this is one of these things where I do wonder going forward if everyone talks about, oh, my God, you won't believe what will happen in this election going forward. I have to wonder if it's actually going to be an extremely static race just for the simple fact that these are two of the most well-known people running for office that we've had in quite some time. Um, you know, Donald Trump has been a public figure for 30 years. Hillary Clinton has been a public figure for 20 years. Everyone has a pretty clear set of priors on both of these people. And so I'm actually wondering to the degree to which campaigns matter at all, if they're going to matter even less this time around. Well, I was just actually reading before we got on, um, and I apologize that I don't remember whose observation this was. It was not mine. But um, actually, nothing changed, or maybe North Carolina is the only state that changed from um, June to November in 2012. Huh. So that was a static race. Right. And, and these you know, guys are even more, although, I mean, it, you know, Trump again is a wild card, but I do wonder if that's how it's going to. Uh... If that's how it's going to play out. I have to say, I do. And this, again, leads to a paradoxical, interesting question, which is if Trump really does get thumped in November, all the talk that we're hearing now about how he's challenging the foreign policy consensus and challenging, you know, sort of establishment thought, if he actually gets smoked, then paradoxically, I think no one's going to try doing this for a long time. Yeah, I. Or do you think this is just the beginning the... Of, a, of something deeper? I do. I think you're going to see in 2017 um, some some revolt within both parties um, mm. along national security lines, although also along other other issues. And you know the the fact that you, um, although I'm really really tired of the Trump Obama Sanders all have the same views on foreign policy, which they really do not. But um, to the extent to which um, there are you know, look, there are there are significant differences between Marco Rubio and Donald Trump. There are significant differences between um, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, not so much on what should we do about ISIS, but on sort of at the more theoretical level, what should we be saying our policies are on, on intervention, right. that kind of thing. And I do think you're going to see um, a weakening of the control of both party establishments in Congress and more fights around more internal fighting and more sort of cross-party alliances around around this this kind of work. That'll be interesting going forward. And I, I this is a nice segue, actually, to the, the next topic of conversation, because I think one of the things that, I, that has struck me about this sort of last year of the Obama administration is, you know, as much as we might be talking about the cracking up of the foreign policy establishment or the, or the dominant foreign policy narrative, the degree to which um, both Barack Obama and, in some ways, his alter ego, Ben Rhodes, uh, who's deputy national security advisor, have genuinely felt like it's been a straitjacket that they've had to try to punch up, you know, punch against, and, and not always successfully. Um, so, I mean, we first saw this in the... I, I, if you paid any attention to read, you know, reading this stuff, you've seen this sort of emerge in dribs and drabs over the last you know, couple of years. But in, in this last year of, pardon my French, don't give a fuck Obama, um, you know, both Obama's uh, long interview with Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic, and now uh, this Sunday there is a New York Times Magazine, I assume, cover story on Ben Rhodes. Um, and the degree of contempt to which both of them have, you know, hold towards 
the foreign policy establishment, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, is really startling. Um, it's clear that Obama deeply resents the ways in which think tankers and other foreign policy analysts sort of talk, talk up the notions of credibility and resolve, especially with respect to the Syria, uh, you know, the decision to, to not bomb Syria in the fall of 2013, but also with respect to things like the Iran deal. Um, ben Rhodes, you know, in this magazine story, I think refers to the Washington foreign policy establishment as, quote, the blob. Um, and just generally demonstrates massive amounts of contempt towards, let's see, foreign reporters, or sorry, you know, overseas, you know, foreign affairs reporters based in the United States, um, national security reporters, think tankers, pretty much anyone he even talks about in that uh, magazine. Story. Advocacy groups, yeah. funders. Uh, yeah. It, it was, um, I, I have to say it was one of those interviews where as a political scientist, I was delighted to read it because he actually said this stuff. Um, on the other hand, you know, I didn't think Obama, it, forget Obama not caring what he says. I, I, I can't believe Rhodes actually said this to a reporter on the record. Um, it's particularly odd that he said it on the record to a reporter who's on the record opposing the Iran deal. Uh-huh. And um, go on. So just that as a, as a piece of choice around who you were going to have this conversation with. Mm -hmm. Is, is either a really fascinating slip up or a really fascinating display of contempt all by itself. I, um, there was a lot of contempt in that piece. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, it's, um, I know Ben. I worked with Ben. I helped Ben do stuff. I admire Ben for what he's accomplished. He's a marvelous writer. Um, and I tell you what, if you went to an elite school, um, if you had a series of elite Washington, D.C. jobs, if your friends and your spouse and um, everyone you spend time with are uh, part of the D.C. foreign policy <laughs> establishment, if the way that you, for, you identify yourself as having first connected with foreign policy is, and I quote, my mom's best friend <laughs> ran the Carnegie Endowment, um, you and I feel this way about Obama too. Actually, yeah. I felt this way about the and I, you know, you are. It's and it. I almost feel like um, saying, "Oh, I'm not part of the establishment," is a tell mm -hmm. that you are part of the center left establishment. And I look. I mean, as somebody who did not grow up in Manhattan and go to a fancy private school and smoked dope in Central Park, um, but who did, you know, get the Ivy League education and have the enviable string of fancy jobs and is now sitting at a think tank. Yes, it's weird for me and it chafes on some of my political beliefs, but yes, this is the national security establishment. We're it. But I, And you gotta, I, I just, I, I, this, this is so strange to me. I mean, there's a couple of things going on here, I think. The, the first is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, the the part where he admits how he got into this world, you know, which is essentially through connections, through you know, through his his mother's friend, is is somewhat strange. This is there. You're right. There is this weird psychological thing that both Obama and Rhodes, and I assume Dennis McDonough and a, and a bunch of the others possess, which is is that they're simultaneously at the center of power. But this belief that they're somehow above it all, that, that they are able to, you know, stand back and realize the absurdities of 
what they consider to be the Washington foreign policy establishment, which I don't deny there are some pathologies there, but the pathologies on display in that article, and for that matter, the Obama one that, that uh, from the Jeffrey Goldberg uh, interview, are also on display. And, I, you know, for, for all the, the talk about how, you know, that you had intellectually sophisticated people coming into the, the White House with Obama's election. You know, it, I think the most telling sentence in that article, well, there are two telling sentences in that article. The first one is when David Samuels claimed that Ben Rhodes does not appear in most stories about American foreign policy, which actually caused me to spit water somewhere. Um, and, and really, I, I was actually gobsmacked by that, and it causes me to doubt somewhat any of Samuels' conclusions throughout the entire rest of the piece, because maybe I'm reading a different slice of... of press coverage, but I can't read a story about American foreign policy usually without some Ben Rhodes quote popping up. Um, the second thing, though, was where at some point I think Samuels compared Rhodes or, or Obama to Bush in the sense of their near certainty that they are absolutely right. Um, and while you can argue that, you know, Obama has managed to avoid a catastrophe like Iraq, there have been some altogether different catastrophes on his watch. And the degree, the, the sort of blasé attitude that Rhodes has about, let's say, something like Syria, I do find somewhat disturbing. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, as if, if being a progressive means anything, it's that you've got to look at Syria and say... That's a failure. We, that's a failure, and that's, that's on us and the values that we claim to represent. Right. As, as progressives. Um, I want to loop back to something a little bit less, less heavy than that, um, which is to say that some of this is eighth year of an administration pathology. Um, say that again. Some of this by, is what? Some of this is, is eighth year of, oh, an administra okay, yeah, of a White yeah, House yeah, pathology. Enough. And I don't, I don't care who you are. I don't care what party you're from. I don't care, you know, whether you are you know an African American? Whether you grew up in um, in Ar in poverty in Arkansas, or whether you you know grew up in Manhattan in privilege, if you have been sitting in that place for eight years with people firing away at you all day, you do number one develop the impression that you're smarter than everyone else because no one ever tells you otherwise. <laughs> And number two, you develop the sense that you are embattled and you are fighting a lonely fight against you know a million little midgets with with toothpicks because you are. So, I mean, I think a lot of both what, what Rhodes expressed and what Obama expressed in that Atlantic piece, I mean, it, it's reminiscent of things I heard and feelings I know people had in, in my time at the end of the Clinton White House. Um, it's certainly like things I hear people say about how they feel about what the end of the Bush administration was like. Um, I think in many ways we were better off back when you couldn't go to a reporter and talk about it until you got out and had some time to, to take some rest and have some umbrella drinks. I mean, in some way, it actually points to a deeper problem, which I've been talking about when I, in my class that I've been lecturing at Fletcher. I mean, Rhodes is not, Rhodes doesn't fit this because he's NSC staff, so it would be easy to replace him. But, you know, one of the problems with the, the length of the confirmation process in the Senate is that if you get appointed to a high-level position now in the government, you know, it used to be, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, my memory when I was growing up in like, you know, in let's say the 90s, is that, you know, if you got one of these jobs, you were there probably 18 months to 36 months. 
Um, you know, maybe maybe if you were a, a real plugger, you could last four years. But these jobs are, you know, are absolute killers in the sense of the degree of stress, the degree, of, you know, that you have to deal with. And then, you know, you just get burned out and you need to leave after a while. Uh, but I do wonder if the difficulty of trying to replace people is such that people hang on longer than they should. Um, you know, there are ways in which I actually like some of what Ben Rhodes says, not in that interview, but it is said in the past or, or you know, aspects of his foreign policy thought. But, you know, increasingly over time, I began to notice that any time Rhodes spoke on the record about Obama's foreign policy, he would step into something that would create a larger kerfuffle than than what happened before he said something. And I, you know, it, it, you got the impression of someone who was truly burned out and embittered. Um, and this interview just reeks of that, um, of just someone who is, cannot wait, you know, to, to, you know, particularly post Iran deal. Uh, oh, and that's something else I want to talk about, uh, that part of the story. Um, but you know, someone who just cannot wait to be gone January 20th, 2017. Um, but I wonder if that, that one of the issues here is that because of the confirmation process, people are staying on too long in jobs that they shouldn't be staying on. Well, I would actually, I mean, the confirmation process and the nomination process and the clearance process are hell on earth, yeah. and they are driving good people out of public service. Right. Um, and there's no question about that. This is, however, a somewhat different problem. Right, I grant that. I think, yeah. which is that you have, and it's, and it's not, again, it's not just roads. And I, I, I want to, I'm a little, un I mean, yes, if you get your story told in the New York Times Magazine, you're kind of open, but, but I do, I do know Ben personally. I think he's a decent guy, and I would like to, I have, I have now said everything negative I want to say and more <laughs> okay. about him personally because, you know, at the end of the day, he's a human being like all the rest of us. But there is a group of people, the, the, the sort of super Obama loyalists from the beginning have stayed much longer than it is normal for a team to stay. Hmm. So it isn't just Rhodes. It's also McDonough. It's also Samantha Power. It's also yeah. Susan Rice. Um, and it's also uh, Tony Blinken. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's it's not usual to have that much of your team not have had fresh blood injected into it at the very high personal advisor levels. Right. It's not it's not usual for for the people that the president talks to not to change up a little more a little more over eight years. No, that's interesting. Um, yeah, and it, the, I, I think the other aspect. Well, I would say the other thing is is that you know, I, and I understand you don't want to speak ill of, of Ben. And to be fair to Rhodes, the, you know, while he displayed truly an impressive amount of contempt towards everyone in this in this interview, the reaction to it has suggested that the contempt is mutual. Um, my my favorite one being, I think Tom Ricks has a uh, an article now in Foreign Policy, uh, essentially saying, you know, this is a really fascinating profile of the asshole that is Ben Rhodes, um, and uh, you know, Ricks doesn't pull any punches either. So you know, I I, I think. You know, maybe what you can say is, is that in the eighth year, you know, uh, everyone now gets to be totally honest with each other about how they feel about each other. Um, yeah. And I mean, I guess the other thing I would say is it's really, really hard to have done the same job for eight years without um, sort of ending up in this place or, or something like it. Right. Which is, again, my suggestion that maybe you shouldn't be in this job for eight years. You know, this is this is uh, and I mean this seriously in the sense of the mental health of both Ben Rhodes, not to mention the policy making, you know, abilities of the White House. But the other, the thing that is also causing a lot of controversy about this story, I believe, is the notion that somehow Rhodes, you know, stage managed or, or you know, was in charge of the war room for 
the Iran deal uh, uh, votes in Congress and, you know, basically engaged in aggressive spin to somehow shape the debate in such a way through social media and what have you. And, you know, frankly, there were some reporters that got impugned, I think, in, in the story, particularly Jeffrey Goldberg and Laura Rosen. Um, where the suggestion is that they were basically sort of being manipulated by Rhodes and the White House staff uh, on on the Iran deal. I was curious about your take on that. Um, the things that Rhodes said were very unwise and inappropriate and and not not um, not worthy of someone in his position. I think so. First point. Um, second point. Um, I, as many viewers will know, was pretty involved in, in the advocacy around the Iran deal from the outside. So I am, I am in no way a neutral observer in this conversation. I just want to like not even pretend otherwise. Um, I, um, the point that I would make is that you cannot, and, and this unfortunately is, is not consistent with what Ben said, but if you look at the track records of the people and organizations that were speaking out on behalf of the Iran deal, uh, they had really pretty much without exception been doing so at least since 2007. Mm -hmm. um, so, the, you know, the idea that the White House kind of invented this little army of, of um, fake advocates is is wrong and insulting and it's you know it's wrong and insulting to people like you know Jeff Goldberg and Laura Rosen who had been doing what they do as journalists for a long time and you can track their work and you can track their work you know before and and during and after mm -hmm. um it's insulting to people like Tom Pickering you know i mean Ben Rhodes did not create Tom Pickering and his bipartisan 40 year career in American foreign policy yeah. Um, so, uh, that I think, um, was a not very well thought through effort to talk about, you know, the very important and maybe underappreciated role, you know, that for a White House that has often been criticized for not working well with outside groups. That that was an instance where there was a lot of cooperation, and nobody nobody who was involved would would deny that. Right. Um, but I think it wasn't you know the way he characterized it maybe was not was not thought through or or just not thought through from the perspective of outsiders' imperatives as opposed to the White House's imperatives. I think there's one, there's one other aspect of this which I, I didn't whether or not Rhodes should have, I, I agree with you Rhodes what, what Rhodes said was. Uh, very odd, but in some ways, this this part I hang on the reporter David Samuels, which is th the presentation of that part of the story made it seem that that Rhodes, working with outside groups, somehow managed to mastermind and create a narrative that that as a result led to Congress not voting to repeal the Iran deal. Um, and as someone, and I remember blogging about this at the time. The thing that was striking about last summer in 2015, you know, when, when this was being debated furiously and you saw a lot of ads put up, a lot of, you know, as you say, a lot of, a lot of outside groups taking part and so on and so forth. In the two months, and I looked at the public opinion polling on this, in the two months between when the deal was announced in June and the votes started coming up to Congress, you know, in September, um, there were two remarkable things that, that happened. The first is, is that public attitudes did shift somewhat against the Iran deal. Um, not a lot, 
you know, there, there, but but the point is that right after the deal was announced in June, I think there was more support for it than there was come late August. Um, so in that sense, whatever master narrative that, that the White House came out with didn't necessarily work terribly well, or they, or they, it only staunched the bleeding. But second and far more amusing to me is that it was very clear, you know, based on the questions, that Americans knew far less about the Iran deal come September than they did when it was initially announced. Um, yep. In other words, the degree to which the American public was actually engaged in this debate at all was all, next to nothing. Um, and in some ways, that in and of itself, I, I find the, the remarkable point. Now, maybe you can argue that what Samuels describes in the story does matter at an elite level, that maybe, you know, members of Congress and, and congressional staffs were paying attention to this. But I think the thing that was the most important thing about the reason the Iran deal winds up getting through Congress is that in the end, the public was disinterested. And so as a result, Democrats felt they could vote for it without suffering any kind of negative electoral blowback from it at home. So I, if I could sort of spin that, spin that out a little bit, I think the piece um, that's missing from that narrative is that, of course, there was, and I think you and I even discussed this on a, on a blogging heads. I know I, I wrote about mm -hmm. it um, at Polyarchy. There was a very expensive and highly ballyhooed counter effort. Yes, that's fair. You're that right. Was, yes, I think we did. Talk that about was that. put together. Yeah. So, you know, in fact, there was an enormous amount of money spent. I mean, and, and it was like 10 to uh, 1 ratio or something. Yes. That, that, yeah. Fair. I mean, the, the pro deal groups were hugely outspent yes. by the, the anti deal groups. Um, and, you know, as you say, that did move the public opinion needle a little bit away from support for the deal, um, also away from polling questions that actually included any facts about the deal. But the way I would sort of conceptualize what the elite debate was that you had, you had anti-deal elites who were counting on mass mobilization to push Democratic members of Congress away from their president. Right. And that didn't happen for some combination of the work that the pro deal groups did and the American public's sort of general indifference to the whole thing. And, you know, frankly, the American public's, um, probably correct assertion or assessment that both the, 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 the benefits that some of the more extreme deal proponents were promising were not going to come to pass, but, you know, that the nuclear apocalypse the deal opponents were predicting was also not going to come to pass and that they could therefore go back to worrying about their job or their summer vacation or their baseball team or whatever. No, I think that's, that's, that's a fair assessment. It was just, it, it was a very strange part of the, the article for me. And I don't, again, I agree with you that Rhodes, obviously, you know, I, I don't know what Rhodes was thinking when he said those things, but I also think in some ways part of that, Part of the problem with that part of the story lies with the reporter as well. Well, when you when you learn, as I didn't know when I first read the story, but when you learn that the reporter has a backstory as an anti-deal agitator, um, it does make it makes the presentation make somewhat more sense, and it you know it makes one wonder, you know, it's I wonder I wonder what else Ben said that didn't end up in the story. Oh wait, Samuel's so the reporter opposed the Iran deal. Yes, the reporter, you can go oh, to the Hudson, you can go to the Hudson Institute and you can find video of the reporter on a panel at the Hudson Institute op opposing the deal during the debate over it this summer. Yeah. This, I, I'm going to ask another question and I know you can't answer this. Why the hell would Rhodes have let this guy then track him in the White House? Um, why did Rhodes do it? Yeah. Why the hell did the New York Times Magazine think it was appropriate to have someone who had a record as a public advocate on an issue you know, not at, at minimum disclose that somewhere in the story. Um, those are both great <laughs> questions, Professor Dresner. 
I'm just, a, I'm just, I'm just part of the blob. You know, I, I like my brain cells don't move independently. I'm waiting for, um, I'm waiting for the Sunday shows to tell me what. You're I waiting can for promise. orders from high above. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for orders from the TV on Sunday morning to tell me what. Ah, uh, well, fair enough. I, I think this concludes the grumpy blob uh, edition of, of uh, Dresbert. <laughs> Um, I think so. Yes, and um, happy, happy May, and happy Heather. Mother's Day, Heather. Um, Thank you. you know, Thank you, and um, happy, happy weekend. I, 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 I kind of don't like Mother's Day because it's kind of essentializing, honestly. Um, oh, actually, we can finish with Bill Crystal. This is fantastic. Okay, go ahead. So, s- since you mentioned Mother's Day, um, and since we were talking earlier about you know independent presidential runs and so on and so forth, Bill Crystal has been trying to recruit Ben Sass the senator from um, Nebraska to run for president. And he- Sass, I should, um, we should point out, Sass has been opposing Trump for, for months now and has actually been very active on Twitter explaining exactly why he opposes Trump. And he demurred for running for president, which you know shows me that he's pretty well-educated pretty about the, yeah, cha- the challenges <laughs> of mounting an independent campaign at this stage in the process. Um, and one of the excuses he gave, which is a good one, and I'm always delighted to see men using it as well as women, is that he has young children at home Aww. and doesn't want to spend that much time away from them. And Crystal tweeted back at him, um, as an older parent of young children, parenting young children is overrated. <laughs> okay. Um, and, go ahead, um, go ahead. And you know, you know what? That is absolutely true. I didn't enjoy babies very much. But that's no freaking reason not to do it. The, oh, all right, you're you're putting me in a ridiculous <laughs> position, which is I'm going to make an effort to defend Bill Crystal on this. Uh, okay, you guys, you guys, I, I we didn't plan this. I, I he's bringing it on I'm, himself. I'm bringing this he, on myself. He is, he's bringing it, Dan. I'm 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 gonna so like have... in in honor of Mother's Day, <laughs> I'm gonna try to stop you. You know, son, you'll regret this later. Okay, here's the only way I would phrase this. Just not to say, you're right. I mean, it, it, it was something stupid for Crystal to say. But I will say this. As the parent of children who are now, you know, tweens and teens, I would actually argue that this part of the parenting process is sometimes underrated or underemphasized. That as important it is to be there when your kids are small, I think it's even more important for you to be there when your kids are tweens and teenagers and, you know, trying to navigate high school and and you know puberty and adolescence and all of those kinds of things and and, and furthermore those are, are the more challenging times because occasionally you know your child's hormones will get the best of them and they don't want to listen to you for whatever reason whatsoever and that requires in some ways even more persistence than when you've got a two-year-old that you can physically overpower you know if you have to get them in the car seat or what have you um so you know i i i'm not going to really defend crystal but i all, all i want to say is that i think in some ways parenting older children is 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 underemphasized as an important part of parenting. And you know, you realize the reason for that is that if we had understood when we had little kids and we were all saying to ourselves, it's going to get better, right? It's going to get easier. Like, there's a reason they don't tell you about this. Oh, no. No, no, they don't. Um, so, so to conclude, <laughs> blogging heads, watchers, don't have children. It's just... Happy Mother's Day, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Blogging Heads TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Blogging Heads episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at bloggingheads.tv slash subscribe.
There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.